in all types of organizations, there are planning, strategy, and reporting type meetings. There's generally a leader of the meeting guiding the team through the agenda, and usually there is a desire to hear the ideas of others about the uh, team's approach, trying to refine the team's approach to their mission. Sometimes these meetings are productive. Um, For instance, our elders and deacons meetings are usually pretty straightforward. We usually enter into the meeting with a majority of the information already in our hands, and so we can navigate through the material that we're discussing quite easily. Other times, uh, well, let's just say there are some moments. For instance, a month ago I was involved in a meeting of another organization, not a church entity. And uh, the leader was soliciting ideas of best practices for the coming year. um, There were some ideas. I'm not exactly sure how to express some of this, but as I sat there listening, there were some ideas that came forth that I had to remind myself not to have a facial reaction. Not to laugh, not to roll my eyes, because some of the ideas proposed in these settings can be a struggle to relate what's being said with what the mission is. If you're running a particular organization, generally you have a mission or a vision of where you're headed. And so what you want is for all the items that you're planning and preparing and and then executing to be part of something that would come underneath that vision or that mission statement that you have. So for instance, we are not a daycare center, so our, our, our activities wouldn't be trying to figure out ways of being a great daycare center because we're a church. And so you want to make sure that whatever is brought forth in a meeting kind of comes underneath that idea. One of the important ideas that we want to gather this morning as we study through this passage is that God does not need a staff meeting to gather ideas about how to accomplish his mission. In Romans 9, 10, and 11, he's been telling us what his mission is, and he's been telling us how he's going to bring it to pass. And he's dependent upon only one being. Did you notice that? He says, I am going to do this, and I am going to do this, And here's the result. Remember the result from last week? All Israel will be saved. This is something that God is going to accomplish. Now, He uses us as part of the process. And He's made that abundantly clear in these chapters, 9, 10, and 11, how He uses the rebellion of Israel to bring forth the people of the Gentiles into a merciful relationship with Him. And then he uses the merciful relationship he has with the Gentiles to allure the people of Israel to jealousy. And thus, God brings the people of Israel to himself. God lets us know how he utilizes his people in the the result of accomplishing his mission. This morning, we will praise our God who needs no counsel nor gifts because he is the source of 
sustainer and goal of all things. We will worship God this morning in our study by looking through this passage in three different ways. First, in verses 33 and 34, that God's greatness is beyond our understanding. God's greatness is beyond our understanding. And then in verse 35, God is never in our debt. And then finally, in verse 36, God is the source and goal of all. This passage brings all of these ideas and some more to our attention. So we'll start with that first item. God's greatness is beyond our understanding from verses 33 and 34. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Paul doesn't try to hide his awe at all in this passage. In verse 33, he begins with this great exclamation. Oh, Oh. Now, there's negative oh, and there's positive oh. Dear, what's for supper tonight? Salad. Oh. <laughs> Dear, what's for supper tonight? Pizza. Oh. <laughs> this is not the negative kind of oh. This is oh, I see. Do you remember how he started in chapter 9? His heart was absolutely broken. And what was it broken with? Despair that his fellow countrymen were not the ones who had, to this point, been knocking down heaven's doors coming to know Jesus as their Savior. And he said, I would give anything. I would give anything that they would be saved. I would even be willing to give up my own security with the Lord if He would bring in my Brethren, according to the flesh, the people of Israel. And then he continues through this discourse, this teaching. And he says, Oh, 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 oh the depths. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Your judgments are unsearchable. The way you go about things. I can't trace it. But I see. I see that you're going to do this. I understand who you are. I, I now understand a depth of your richness, your wisdom, and your knowledge that I, I could not previously fathom. Oh, the depth. The term there is bathos. Extreme depth. Five years ago, we took one morning each week during the summer and just did something with our oldest three kids, and we called it Mornings with the Bigs. <laughs> and uh, one day in, in those, that summer, we went to Purgatory Chasm, so I have a few pictures. We'll kind of go through them just one after the other slowly to get a grasp of that. My wife and the three oldest kids, the next one, me with my three oldest kids, and then just one kid. <laughs> How adorable is that kid? 
Um, if you were to look through them again, which obviously you don't have the luxury of right now, you would see there was one very consistent thing between the three pictures. Aiden's smile and his thumbs up. We had a great time that day. Um, not pictured in this short period um, or this period of time was a short period of uh, great unhappiness. Who captures those with their camera? <laughs> uh, we were up on top of one of the larger rocks in Purgatory Chasm, and there was a deep gap in the, the rock. Um, and Aiden was terribly afraid. Now, shocking, because Aiden's really not afraid of anything. He's pretty much going to go do whatever it is. Um, but he's, you know, he was afraid of this crevice. So, being the kind and compassionate dad that I am, I didn't want him to be afraid of that crevice. So I picked him up, walked him over toward it, and he was getting more and more agitated as we got closer to it. I said, I've got you. I've got you. And I put one foot on one side of the crevice and another foot on the other side of the crevice. And I said, look, we're okay. I've got you. I, you don't need to be afraid of this. You know, you would think that that would have worked. It didn't. It may have made him more upset. At any rate, you can question the wisdom of my tactics. Why was he afraid? Well, it was a deep crevice, and if he fell in there, bad things were going to happen. It was deep. It was deep. There are depths that are challenging and scary, and then there are depths like the deepest part of our ocean. Like the, It's called the Challenger Deep. It's on the southern point of the Mariana Trench. It's 36,200 uh, 36, feet deep. That would make one afraid. God's depths are far greater than the deepest depths that we can see with our eyes or learn about in a textbook or on the internet or in whatever other way you might learn something. God's depths are, are in unfathomable. They're incalculable. God is deep. The depths of God are unimaginably deeper than anything we've seen. And the depths of God are only understood as God reveals them to us by His Spirit. Listen to this passage of Scripture. It will be on the screens. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 8-10, through 10, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. You know, I've been studying and reading God's Word for a number of years I've been preparing. I started preparing for ministry when I was 16 years old. Had a lot of opportunity for schooling and a lot of opportunity to preach God's Word, which means I've had a lot of opportunity to study God's Word. And the depths of God 
and the depths of God's Word are so beyond our current comprehension. Now what God has revealed in Scripture, we're responsible to know. And how God teaches us by His Spirit, we're responsible to respond. But God's depths are beyond the deepest portions of what He has already revealed to us. You know, and this is another exclamation of the Apostle Paul in the process of his writings. In, in Ephesians chapter 3, he's talking about praying to God and God strengthening us in our inner man. And he, and he, he ends that portion of, of Ephesians 3 by talking about how God is going to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Um, as part of all of this discussion, he talks about knowing the love of God that is beyond Knowledge. He talks about the height of it, the length of it, the width of it, and the depth of it. He's trying to convey that God's person and God's way is bigger than our conception and our capabilities. God is deep. God is deep. Paul is in awe of how deep God's riches and wisdom and knowledge are. So he starts with God's riches. Now, you might have a translation that says, uh, for, uh, excuse me, all the depth of the riches, and then it says, both the wisdom and knowledge. That's a fine way to translate it because the in between riches and wisdom and knowledge is a chi. It's just a, simply it's a conjunction. It could be and, or it could be both. It can be also. Um, as I understand the passage, I think he's talking about three distinct things. Riches, wisdom, and knowledge. Now, there's not a whole lot of distinction between wisdom and knowledge uh, in this passage, but riches, wisdom, and knowledge. Some of your translations would, would give it the idea that all the depth of God's riches, which are His wisdom and knowledge. But I think that there's more to this passage by the way that it's structured God's riches he's been telling us about in this passage. It is, it's been a, a recurring theme in the book of Romans, God's riches. Now we all know that acronym of, for grace, right? God's riches at Christ's expense. We know that acronym. Um, riches. What are these riches? God has provided an eternal salvation for all who call upon the name of the Lord. Has that been clear from the book of Romans? God has provided eternal salvation for all who call upon the name of the Lord. It's a beautiful realization. And that salvation that God has offered us, the riches, puts us into a relation, a family relationship with God. In Romans chapter 8, he calls us his adopted sons. And he tells us as part of that sonship that we have an eternal inheritance. We have become joint heirs with Christ. Let me ask you, how much does Jesus Christ own? Class? Everything! He owns everything. And we have been made joint heirs with Him. 
So as we look at God's riches, we're talking about the fact that we've received a salvation that has resulted in our relationship with God, that's an eternal relationship with God, that we'll, we'll never be uh, in a position of being condemned, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. We'll never be in a position where God will separate us from His love, Romans chapter 8, the end of the chapter. God has given us this eternal relationship with Himself that results in us inheriting Everything that Jesus, the Son of God, inherits. God has given him the kingdoms. This is good. To be made right with God, to be made one of God's children, to have this eternal inheritance, there's nothing in this world that compares to these riches provided with God, provided by God. If you think about it, you know, you've been spending a lot of your life, right? You work, you go to work. Monday through Friday, maybe Monday through Saturday, maybe maybe Sunday through Sunday, whatever your work schedule is, you've been going to work, right? And you do your job diligently. And you wisely save some of the money. And you wisely spend some of the money because you have to live. And you wisely give or share some of the money because that's one of the calls in our lives. We save some, spend some, share some. This is good. We're accumulating something because we hope that at some day we won't have to keep going to work. We'll be able to retire, and when we retire, we'll be able to do a couple of things that we weren't able to do while we were working. That's, that's one of, it's kind of a normal strategy that people have. Maybe you've accumulated a lot over the course of your life. Maybe you've accumulated just a little. No matter whether it's a little or a lot, nothing, nothing compares to the riches that God has given to us in Christ and so Paul, in response to this, says, oh, the depth, the depth of the riches of God. He is in, he's given to me far more than I deserve, far more than anything I could have desired. And then he speaks of God's wisdom and knowledge. Now, we could try to differentiate between these words. Now, the general concept, okay, knowledge is, is an accumulation of information, Right? And then wisdom is the application of that knowledge. We could try to differentiate it that way. God is always doing in accordance with what He knows. So that distinction wouldn't be um, so helpful. God's ways are done wisely in accordance with what He knows. He, he, this is the way it is. He essentially, Paul, is marveling at the vast plans and purposes of God that have resulted in the salvation of all types of people. And so he's rejoicing in God's faithfulness to his promises. And I think that's what we need to do as we look through this text. As we think through it, God will never come short of fulfilling his promises that he utters throughout the Scriptures. I can trust him. I can place every ounce of my affection and every ounce of my expectation on the line because I know that I'm placing it in the hands of the one who is worthy and who is faithful. Paul then states that God's judgments are unsearchable and His ways untraceable. That's what it says in verse 33, right? His judgments are unsearchable. What is a judgment? Decisions. Decisions. What kind of decisions does God make? Well, He weighs. He weighs people's actions, doesn't He? Remember that 
crazy scene in the book of Daniel, chapter 5. There they are, hanging out. Now, I'm not talking about the Christians. We're talking about the ungodly people. The people that didn't know the Lord. They're hanging out, and they're using the vessels that were designed to worship God to party and sacrifice to their gods. And lo and behold, in the midst of their party, they were interrupted by a hand. Not a person with a hand, just a hand. And there was handwriting on the wall. And I, I'm not going to say the, the, the words because I'll probably brutalize them. If they were in front of me, I'd be able to say them. You know, Mene, Mene, yeah, that one. Tickle, Ooperson, I did it anyway. It's hard to talk myself out of it. At any rate, you've been weighed in the balances and found lacking. God's judgments are unsearchable. I can't decide how God's going to go about things. And His ways then are untraceable. Has the idea of a, of a pathway. I'll quote John MacArthur in this. He writes, uh, the word literally refers to footprints that are untraceable, such as those of an animal that a hunter is unable to follow. It is the exact idea expressed by the psalmist in declaring of God, the way, thy way was in the sea, and thy paths in the mighty waters, and thy footprints may not be known. So the idea is, okay, God's judgments are unsearchable, and the ways He goes about things are untrackable, untraceable, unhuntable. I can't figure them all out. That's what he's saying. Job had a similar thought in Job 11. Listen to these words. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Think that one over for a second. Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Let's pause for a second. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. His throne is in heaven and the earth is His footstool. The, the world is filled with His glory. There's nowhere we can go where He can't find us because He's there. Can you, can you figure out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. God knows all things. Nothing takes place without His intimate knowledge. Not just His vague awareness. Intimate knowledge. You can read about this in Psalm 139. On the other hand, we, you, me, we're not all-knowing. We don't know everything that's going on. We don't have intimate knowledge of everything that's happening. Paul makes reference in this text to Isaiah 40. Let's take a look there, please. Isaiah 40. God knows all things. He's intimately aware, which means He's intimately engaged. He's intimately involved. That means I can, I can trust that what's happening in my life wasn't a mistake. God wasn't unaware. He's not uncaring. 
in Isaiah 40. It's a great passage. We're going to cut right into the middle of it where Isaiah is pondering the greatness of God. We're going to look at verses 12 through 15. Isaiah 40, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Who has shown him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Or who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Can you see that Isaiah is just pondering? Hey, just, just curious, just wondering. When God was doing, you know, laying down the foundation of the world and, and such, did he ask you your opinion about how we should do this? When God makes his decisions, does he say, hey, I know, I'll ask Rob. No. He doesn't consult with anyone. He doesn't need to. And this is what Paul is kind of, he's concluding this very important discussion in Romans 9, 10, and 11 by saying, who told God how to go about this? Now you know if men came up with a scheme about the salvation of mankind, it would look a lot different than what we read in our Bibles, wouldn't it? You see it, the fingerprints of man in the religions of the world and how man will do this, that, and the other thing to appease a God, to, to gain favor with a God. Men, when men are involved in these discussions, we find ways to make ourselves worth it. And you know what the Bible constantly points out to us? God makes us worthy. God makes us worthy. We don't make ourselves worthy. The more I try, the more I accumulate what Isaiah calls filthy rags, or Paul calls dung. I don't make myself worthy. God does. So you can see the fingerprints of how men would write salvation history in the religions of the world. When we read the Scriptures, we see something altogether different because man didn't influence God's plan. God's plan was, I'm going to create a perfect world he knew men will sin, violating my covenant. I will send a Savior who will bear the sin debt of these people so they can be made perfect again. You've got creation, fall, redemption, and then consummation, the end when God fills and fulfills all things, bringing about the perfect end to a perfect creation. This is what God does. It's amazing. Who did he consult? Isaiah says, no one. Who did he consult? Paul says, 
no one. You want to know why both Paul and Isaiah tell us that God consulted no one? Because God told them he consulted no one. It's pretty good, pretty obvious, pretty plain. And it should give us a lot of reasons to rejoice and praise our God. Head back, please, with me to Romans 11. Since God is all-knowing and we are not, who would dare to offer to God counsel on how to do things? And yet, there are so many who sit in judgment on how God rules His universe. And quite, if, if, if we're honest, we would admit that we have done the same. God, I've got a situation here. I don't like the situation. Here's how I want you to come to my aid and fix it. Fix it my way. And now. You ever there? Admit it. You've told God what should happen, and you've told Him when it should happen. And I would say to you, there's nothing wrong with an impassioned plea toward God. Pleading for God's help and intervention are pleasing to Him and are good. But we also have to understand in the midst of that conversation, as we're talking to God and we're pleading with the Lord, we have to always remember that He knows and does what's best. So we're not giving Him counsel. We might be speaking freely what's on our mind as Hebrews 4.16 implicates or indicates. But we're not telling God what He ought to do. Let's just say that God needs not to book a counselor. He doesn't need a counseling session with or from anyone because He is all-wise and all-knowing. And not only does he not need a counselor, he never needs a loan. Look at this text again. Verse 33, Romans 11, 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or, verse 35, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? God is never in our debt. God is never in our debt. Here, Paul is going to uh, cite a verse from the book of Job, which is where we're going to head next. Take a look at Job 38. God is never in our debt. We're headed to Job 38. Paul is citing this passage from the book of Job. Job was frustrated. He actually accused God of mistreating him. Essentially, I've, I've, done, I've done all I was supposed to do. This, this, this shouldn't happen this way is essentially what is the context. If you want to hear some snippets of God's reply to Job. And I don't know about you, but I find it remarkable how God, in His meekness, gives Job an answer. Because me, I don't know about you. Probably not you. You're nicer than I am. Um, if, if I were in the position of God and someone starts beefing at me, I'm probably not going to then go on and say, oh, let me, let me have a conversation with you and, and let you 
draw this out of your own mind how you probably haven't responded properly. I might have a little bit more of a crushing sort of a response to that. I don't know. You probably wouldn't. But I think a lot of people wouldn't respond as gently, mercifully, meekly toward Job's accusations as God does. Take a look, please, in Job 38, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is that that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? (laughs) This is not how we speak. (laughs) But God essentially says, Why are you contending with my ways without knowing what you need to know? That's essentially what God just says to him. Look a little further. Verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretches the line upon it? Job? Class? Anyone? How big should it be? How do you do this? Verse 35 now. Same chapter. Job 38. Look down at verse 35. Job, can you send forth lightnings? that they may go and say to you, here we are. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Job, did you do that? Are you the one that imparted all this wisdom to everyone? No, no, I I don't think so. Verse 39. Can you, Job, hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? Are you able to do that? Can, can you take care of all the animals of the field? Make sure they're all fed? Maybe you have a farm, Job. Maybe you had one before and you, you had to deal with all these animals. Can you feed all of them? No, I don't, I don't think so. Verse 41. Who provides for the raven its prey when its young one, ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? You feed the the birds too, Job? You got that all under, under your control? You figured this all out? You go, it does more of this in, in 39. Look, look over at chapter 40. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. I would be feeling a little uncomfortable. You? Wouldn't you? This is a very uncomfortable situation. Look at Job's response in verses 3-5 through of Job 40. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. You know what that is? You know what I love about Job? A lot of things. I love a lot of things about Job. But he learned. He listened. This is why God said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? He's upright. And you could see the uprightness of Job in the immediate aftermath of the tragedies in his life. We will not receive only good from the Lord and not also receive 
difficulty. This is not how we, we deal with things. Remember that? I came out of my mother's room naked. I'm going to go back naked. I don't need anything. God gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That was His wonderful response. Then His friends come and sit silently with Him. And He's in a lot of agony. Things are difficult. He's sitting on an ash heap, scraping pus out of His wounds. Horror. Horror. Terrible things. Then His, his friends make everything worse because they're telling Him all the things He did wrong. And Job's starting to get a little bitter and frustrated. And so he starts to question the Lord. And God graciously and kindly runs Job through the process to think. Think about this, Job. Who are you addressing? Who are you talking to? Who was your complaint really against? And Job says, No more. I'm done. I've got nothing to say. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Just good, wise choices. God continues. Verse 6, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I'm not going to take silence. You already you spoke before. We're going to speak again. I heard you already. I want to hear you again. Not just silence. That's good. Step further. Verse 8, Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like His? This is, this is heavy stuff. Look at chapter 41, verses 1-5. through Job, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nostril and pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you? Soft words. Will that, that giant dinosaur, will he say, Job, could you please help me? No. Absolutely not. Verse uh, 4. Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will, it, will a dinosaur ask you, Job, to make it your servant? Oh, verse 5. Will you play with this dinosaur as with a bird? <laughs> or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Hey, Addie, I want to say, I have a pet for you. Isn't it pretty? What do you want to name it? Bambi? Fluffy? God is... You've got to admit, God is really bringing out some, some humor and some strength in His questioning of Job. Why? Because it... Job, you, you spoke once, and now you're saying you're not going to speak, but you're going to speak. Oh, let's see. Verse, he's not done. Look at verse 11. This is what's quoted in, in Romans 11. Verse 11 of Job 41. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whoever is under the, or excuse me, whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Who's given to me that I needed to pay him back? Job? Do I owe you something? Selah. What that is? See it in the Psalms? Pause. 
and ponder. Friends, there are too many people in this world that think that God owes them something. And God owes no man anything. He has already given the most significant and greatest gift. It's His Son, Jesus Christ. And so God says to Job, do I owe you something? Did, did you give me something first and now I've got to repay you something? Did I need a loan at some point? And he says, no, 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 I, I own it all. That's what God just told him. Look at chapter 42 now. We want to see Job's response just so that we don't leave him speechless. Job 42, verse 1, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not, past tense, understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not, past tense, know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you and, and you will make it known. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. His response was, ah, oh, I got it. I got it, Lord. I'm not, uh, I'm not faultless. You owe me nothing. I come to you recognizing you to be the glorious, majestic, almighty, all-knowing, all-wise, faithful, and right-doing God. And we see the end of the story, right? God restores and, and blesses wonderful. It doesn't mean any of the stuff that happened in the process didn't hurt. And it doesn't mean there wasn't any recollection of the hurt. But God taught Job a valuable lesson that I think we all need to understand. And I'll just point out there to the people out there that don't understand. We all need to understand that we can question God and think like God owes us something when He doesn't owe us anything. He's given us the greatest gift. God doesn't need to borrow money from me or you or anyone else on this earth because God owns everything. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. Psalm 24 tells us this. So we're praising God this morning for His immeasurable greatness. He is infinitely wise, so He needs no counselor, and He's unfathomably rich, so he needs no lender. We see lastly in just for a few minutes that God is the source and goal of all. Head back to Romans 11 just for a moment. And verse 36. This, this passage, verse 36, might be a good candidate for your and my life verse. Verse 36. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. This passage is letting us know that from Him, God is our Creator, and through Him, God is the sustainer. And to Him, God is the goal of His creation are all things. That, that everything we see and everything we learn, everything we taste, everything we hear, everything we touch, it's all 
for the purpose of fulfilling God's glorious plan. God created it all. He, at this moment, holds together every molecule. He keeps the stars and the planets in their proper order. Right this very second, by the word of His mouth. He's the sustainer. He holds our bodies together. He holds our minds together. And He's the goal of it all. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 8. Take a right, one one book, 1 Corinthians 8. Look at verses 5 and 6. Saying the same thing, essentially. He says, For although there are many, or there there may be so-called gods in the heaven and on the earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet there, for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Can you see that He is centering everything of who we are, the source substance and goal centering it in the father and the lord jesus christ god is letting us know that he is the goal of all creation and this is not unique here in romans 11 or 1 corinthians chapter 8 you see it also in colossians 1 16 and 17 for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether they be thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Romans, uh, excuse me, Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11. Worthy are You, O Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will, or for Your pleasure, they exist and were created. God has created all things in accordance with His will for His purposes and His pleasure. This is what God has done. Paul concludes Romans 11 by saying, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. This phrase of the glory of God forever is seven times at least in the writings of Paul. Seven times at least. and We we know and we want God to receive this glory forever and ever. In Romans 16.27, the Bible says this, To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. And Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 21, To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. How often? Throughout all generations. For how long? Forever and ever. Amen. Peter also emphasizes God's glory. And he, and he, he speaks of it in, in, in the discussion of how God uses individual believers with the gifts that He's given to us. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and following, listen to what God's Word says. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Why? In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.
God is glorified by His church as we submit to our Savior, Jesus Christ, and serve Him by God's grace. This results in God being eternally glorified. Now as we come to the end of our discussion, we want to pause and look for opportunities to apply this great doxology. What is this doxology? Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. Who has known or been the counsel of of the Lord? Who, Who gave to Him first that God would repay Him? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. What do we do with this? Well, first of all, we don't give God counsel. We seek His wisdom. We don't give God counsel. We seek His wisdom. That's what what we're called to do. How do we get that, that wisdom from God? We read His Word, right? And we ask Him for that wisdom in prayer. And we also seek wise counsel from those that would point us to Him. Not only do we not give God counsel, but rather seek His wisdom, we also don't put God in our debt because He's given us everything. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32, He did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up freely for us all. How will He not with Him also give us all things? This is, this is a good God. We do give to God. We must. It's part of our worship. It's part of our service to the Lord. But we don't give to God in order that He would pay us back. We don't give to God to get from God. That is distorted. God has enough. Thirdly and finally, we must live understanding that we that all that we are and all that we have is from Him and is supposed to be for Him. You know, I can, I can testify to how so many in this assembly have understood this concept. We haven't passed an offering plate since March of 2020. a long time. And yet, the Lord continues to provide for us. And it doesn't magically appear. Like, oh, we walked around the corner and there's a bucket of money. No. God has laid it upon each one of us individually how we ought to give in response to what God has done for us. And so we give recognizing that everything we have and everything we are comes from Him. And so, no one has to pass an offering plate by us so that we say, oh, oh, I, oh, I almost forgot. Here's a 20. It's, it's not like that. No. God has given us everything. We, we, we want to acknowledge that. We want to give a portion of all He's given in response. You know, after you breathe your last breath, what's going to happen? 
everyone, everyone will stand before God. Everyone. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 9 and verse 27, just as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. No matter what, everyone ends up before the Lord. Think about this passage. Why are you talking about this? Well, in, in verse 34, we're talking about the, or verse 33, the judgments of God, right? And at the end of the passage, it says, from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. We're all going to stand before God. We'll stand before Him. Not with mommy and daddy. Not with an aunt or an uncle. Not with my counselor or my pastor. Not with the deacon or the elder who is caring for me. You're going to stand there before the Lord all by yourself. Everyone will stand before the Lord. And when you stand before Him, what will you offer to God as a reason that He should provide you entrance into heaven? There is no more important question than that. Why do you belong here? And I would ask you, as you think about that, is what is the basis of your confidence that you will spend eternity with God enjoying His glory? If your answer has anything to do with you, I have bad news for you. That judgment day is going to be as unpleasant as anything you can imagine. Because I'm sorry to tell you this, but I have to tell you this. You are not good. And you are not good enough. Now, I'm not just pointing that this way. That's true in this direction as well. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None is good. No, not one. If any of your answer for why you would have confidence that you're going to spend eternity in heaven is about you saying, well, I did this and I did that and I gave this or I adhered to this, you are in bad shape, my friend. Because the standard that God requires is perfect righteousness. And that is not you and that is not me. On the other hand, if your answer starts with Jesus and what Jesus has done on the cross and what Jesus did leading up to the cross and what God did in raising Him from the dead and what God has done in bringing you to salvation and what God has done in placing upon you the righteousness of Christ and what God has done is removed your sin forever. If your answer has to do with what God has done and how you trusted Him, that is another matter. You and I can have perfect confidence that we'll spend eternity with God if our confidence is in the work of God. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To God be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Trust in Christ and you will be bewildered by the wondrous depth of God's riches. And you will be in awe of God's amazing wisdom 
and knowledge that He has given first to us, not us to Him. He is worthy of worship. And if you know Him as your Savior, your heart's singing. Your heart's singing. You know why you should be singing the praise of God because He has done everything that you could possibly have needed to bring you to Himself. And now you have life. Real, enduring, eternal life. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. Father, you know each one's situation. You know what's going on in each one of our hearts. I pray, Father, we pray that you would open eyes unto salvation where that is needed and confirm and convince and strengthen those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior. We want to praise you with every ounce of our being for you are worthy. Help us now as we sing in response to this that uh, we would sing in accordance with Your truth and by Your Spirit. Father, we pray if there's anyone among us that does not know Christ as their Savior that they would not feel uh, comfortable leaving without talking with someone that they might know that they have eternal life. Father, You've offered it. We pray that they would call upon Your name today and be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.